Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Grenfell Inquiry concludes and the long road to memorialising 72 deaths begins. London Mayor holds emergency summit as more than a third of renters face defaulting. Working class people earning thousands less than middle class peers. And one of London's oldest pubs faces closure over a landlord rent dispute. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Robert Bevan. Robert is an architectural journalist and author of the new book, Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past. Welcome to the show. Hi, Merlin. The government is seeking a consultant to run an international contest for a monument commemorating the Grenfell Tower tragedy. This story was broken in the AJ. It was actually written by me. The contest organiser will advise the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, that's DLUC, Uh, on the best way forward to select a team and outline design for the memorial. The search for a supplier who will receive a maximum £125,000 contract to organise the competition comes just days after the conclusion of the inquiry into the fire at Grenfell Tower, which killed 72 people. It also comes a year after survivors and relatives of those who died in the Grenfell fire accused the government of trying to demolish the tower block's remains without consulting them. According to the procurement documents, the scope, brief and budget of the new memorial have yet to be resolved, but bidding teams will be expected to submit ideas for a, quote, significant piece of urban, architectural, landscape, sculptural design. The contest organiser will create and run the competitive process, as well as advising on an honorarium and prize money for the winning project. It will also assist with preparing the design brief and draft briefing documents for all stages of the competition, drafting feedback to unsuccessful bidders, and considering temporary uses of the memorial at major commemorative events, its maintenance and also its management. While the full brief has yet to be confirmed and will only be made available to the contest organiser two weeks after their appointment next year, the procurement documents suggest the memorial will likely be a, quote, landscape-based solution with the potential for a built structure to be located at the site of the Grenfell Tower. According to the documents, key aims of the contest include selecting a design that is quote, innovative and sensitive, as well as practical and robust, uh, and also which is capable of reflecting the, quote, national and international significance of the event without losing the community influence over its design. 
the brief is being drawn up by DLUC and the Independent Grenfell Tower Memorial Commission, which is made up of representatives of the bereaved survivors and local residents. Um, that commission was created to establish plans for a memorial on the site. So, Robert, what's this all about? Your new book focuses on contested memorialization around the world. Why is this story such a big deal? It's such a big deal because it's probably the major memorial to be commissioned in recent years, for one thing. Um, and it also, it's kind of an interesting one because it's uh, it's getting official sponsorship at the same time as it's kind of, if it's going to be truthful, it's going to be a critique of that officialdom. And so it raises issues such as gatekeepers, you know, who controls this process, you know, who pays for it, who pays for the maintenance, who chooses the shortlist. Um, and there have been moves in the past to, uh, I think, ensure that like local creatives are involved in the outcomes as well. And I think Eminent Code has spoken about that on this show before. And those are all things that become kind of opaque when you go through this sort of government way of proceeding of, 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 for a competition. And it's kind of not very grassrootsy, frankly. Uh, if they wanted to, they could have handed that money over to a an arm's length body to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's a commercial proposal, um, but there's plenty of arts organisations out there who have huge experience of running community-based and grassroots and bottom-up processes. And this doesn't seem to be happening here and kind of with the sort of landscape based solution they're all ready trying to predetermine the outcome and just if we think about london just quickly i mean there are examples of grassroots monuments things that were paid for by public uh, subscription uh, and also pieces that commemorate events like uh, the cable street mural for example um this is government funding, it's government organised. Is there an example of anything in London that's that's worked on, on that approach in recent times? Could something like this be more successful if it, if it had control from the community? Well, it's interesting. I've, I'm on the Mayor of London's uh, Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm, and the last couple of years has been about uh, the first stage of responding to sort of... Um, gaps in the commemorative landscape uh, and uh, setting up a, a grant programme to encourage grassroots responses to memorialisation and to reveal hidden histories and part of Londoners, Londoners who aren't represented in that commemorative landscape. And, that, and that's a good thing. And it's interesting that it's being done in a bottom-up way. I think we have to start from uh, a view that uh, official priorities around monumental and memorialization are not the same as other people's priorities. For instance, there has been a refusal by uh, 12 years of government to put any funding into a memorial to the National Memorial to Transatlantic Slave Trade, for instance. They won't do it. They won't get involved in that. Um, and so, and we see it in other aspects of, of, of national um memorial policy the the whole retain and explain um clauses that have been introduced to the national planning policy framework which are designed to retain everything and explain little my reservation about that is that you start to get into discussions about what the purpose of a monument or a memorial is and 
does changing symbols often substitute for systemic change? You know, is an anti-racist monument the same as getting rid of systemic racism or police violence? Uh, and it's sometimes the symbol can obscure or taking away a contested monument. The removal of that monument gives the appearance of change. The past five years have not been without tumult for Grenfell's survivors and relatives of those who died. Um, just a year ago, uh, they were accusing the government of trying to demolish the tower without their consent. Um, the tower itself has, has stood there as a sort of interim or temporary memorial. What role do memorials play for bereaved relatives and the wider public? I think, obviously, they're, they're seen as touchstones and a place to focus feelings. And they've always, there's always been that. Uh, uh, role for memorials in particular and, and we can sort of what's a memorial what's a monument it gets very blurry but the, that's always been a role somewhere to go somewhere to remember there's a few things involved in that you know once the immediate memory fades monuments get forgotten and famously Robert Musil said there's nothing so invisible as a memorial or monument to come in which he said no <laughs> but it's true most just vanish from collective memory, even relatively recently. And that will be the same with Grenfell, unless it's probably activated by so many traditions, something reg some regularity, like the cenotaph is. It has its sort of agency sort of recharged each year by the, the ceremonial activity. Otherwise, things just vanish. Robert, what does a successful memorial look like? What are some of the areas of contention which may be involved in the latest commission for a Grenfell memorial? Um, well, apart from the gatekeeping um, and control issues that I was talking about earlier and the, the idea of the landscape-based solution, which seems like shutting down any retention of, of the tower in, in, in any form, it, that looks like it to me. I, th I think what's interesting as well is there's, there's a tension at the moment between trying to move on from traditional bombastic prestige memorials to something more more contemporary more abstract the void is often used like like the 9-11 memorial museum the absence the anti memorial um, the stumble stones in germany They're, but they are often things that will not please a funder because they are maybe more transitory, they, they, they question permanence, they question hierarchy, um, and you get, I can't, I can't imagine this government going for that when they're funding something. Is there some irony in the fact that this fire happened because of cynicism and cost-cutting around social housing, right? Yeah. And the outcome is a cultural commission, right? Another cultural commission for London. London's got so many art galleries, London's got so many art installations, right? Meanwhile... We've still got massive problems with social housing. We haven't got enough social housing being built. There's loads of buildings all over London and all over the country with flammable cladding on them. And yet you know, they're moving forward with an art commission and they still haven't really learned the lessons from Grenfell. Absolutely. I and mean, we can come on to social housing later. But what I would say to that is they're part of the problem of why the cladding happened was about um, a sort of cod beautification. And that argument of um, to make um, the the product of the post-war housing settlement more acceptable to the wealthy onlooker. The point is, what we might see here is another attempt at beautification, rather than dealing with the real issue of Grenfell, which was 
was that Engels coined it social murder. Uh, and and even and he was alive to the idea of beautification. He talked about housemanization and the way that hid society's problems and terrible housing behind these new facades. And one could argue that, 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 that this is a different form of that process. Now, memorialization is not always straightforward. Looking around the world, are there any successful examples of memorialization which has hit the right notes, which has brought everybody along in the best possible way? It all depends on context and time, and, and things change their meaning over time. It's very hard to think of, of successful memorials that remain successful. And you could say the cenotaph has been successful. In Lutchen's projecting his vertical lines to infinity is a really clever idea. But that, as I said earlier, that only kind of still has relevance because it's still activated once a year. Um, and I think... What's more interesting is the question of what the function they're supposed to perform. In some ways, we want to attach our feelings and emotions to one place that then we can walk away and forget, and that, that we shouldn't be forgetting. In fact, one entrant to the, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, the Eisenman one in Berlin, next to the Brandenburg Gate, one, in, one entrant wanted to blow up the Brandenburg Gate and scatter the dust on the site. He knew that would be unacceptable to the gatekeepers, and that was the point of what he was saying. And also the argument that better, better endless competitions and ideas than one fixed monument that then gets forgotten. We should be thinking about Holocaust and anti-fascism all the time. We shouldn't be leaving it to... A memorial to do that work for us. I guess that's interesting in that the competition, the search for a competition organiser coinciding with the end of the inquiry last week. Well, perhaps the best mem memorial would be a properly funded social housing programme. London Mayor Sadiq Khan has held an emergency summit on the capital's private rented sector after shocking new City Hall polling has indicated as much as 40% of renters will struggle to meet payments over the next six months. The Evening Standard and Property Industry Eye reported that this week the average advertised rent in London has hit £2,343 per month in what is the biggest annual rent increase in the capital since records began. Khan's Emergency Summit of Renters, Charities and Politicians, which convened on Monday morning, is exploring ways of tackling the growing crisis, which includes building a case for introducing a rent freeze. A long-term advocate for rent controls in the capital, Mr Khan said they were essential to, quote, fundamentally rebalance London's private rented sector and make it fit for purpose. City Hall analysis has revealed the stark disparity between London's rental market and the rest of the country. London's average monthly rent of more than £2,300 a month uh, is £1,000 more than the southwest average, £1,300 more than the average in the East Midlands, and more than £1,500 more than in the northeast of England. A disparity which unfortunately is not reflected in most people's wages in London. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, The Guardian reported this week that 40 councils in England saw no social rent housing bill in the past five years, following a decade of government funding cuts. Um, this came after the coalition government slashed funding for subsidised housing by 60% in 2010, and then redirected the remaining money away from social rent towards the more costly, affordable rent housing. 
So, Robert, what's this all about? Most of the conversation since the notorious mini-budget has been on the effects on homeowners and the worry about making rising mortgage payments. The effect of this is coming in incrementally for homeowners. Um, So why have we seen such a huge increase in rents over the last uh, 12 months? I think because the scarcity is becoming ever more apparent, even without the mortgage hikes, which will have an influence on buy-to-let landlords, that sector. Um, And already we've seen the cost increases in the construction industry for repairs and things like that. So there's costs going up, um, and they have been for some time. But uh, fundamentally, this is is a a decades-long issue of scarcity, um, uh, which we can argue started with Thatcher and introducing right to buy. The uh, she abolished the development land tax, which allowed receipts to go back into it. Um, she abolished regional land banks, um, and it's you could argue it's also a a result of an end to um, regional strategies. Um, and we see it's still seeing that again with the nonsense of levelling up. There's no proper regional strategy in this country, which means that London gets overheated, which means the scarcity increases. And if you're not building sort of rented housing, you're you're piling that pressure on the privately rented sector. And it, it's no surprise. I don't know why we are surprised. I mean, one of the solutions might be rent caps, with people like Shelter have been calling for for at least a decade. And not, not the old-fashioned rent cap that was into, introduced in the First World War to, to absolutely stop any increase in rents, which led to all sorts of issues of disrepair, but more of a continental model where uh, rent increases are linked to the inflation indexes and things like that. But even that, you know, given that inflation was announced as 11% today, that, that, that is not going to protect people in the longer term. So it's supply, which is the issue, and supply of affordable housing, not just more housing. It's got to be a not affordable 80% of market rate, um, but socially rented housing. That is a, a, a key problem. And, and instead, what the government is doing is talking about extending right to buy to housing association properties, which will make the problem massively worse very fast. So the mayor's calling for a rent cap. What would that look like in London? Would that solve those problems? Uh, it's part of it. And that that part of the, say, the German model is having longer and more secure tenancies. And just a, a, a rent cap alone is only resolving part of the issue. It, it, it's trying to um, calm rent increases. And that means giving tenants more rights over time. We're hearing that there's 40 councils who've not built any social housing in the past five years. We also know that people who criticise rent controls as a policy basically say that the housing crisis is caused by a lack of housing more generally, as alongside a lack of social housing. Um, and they often talk about liberalising the planning system, you know, freeing developers to build more. Um, can we build our way out of this? Well, yes and no. Yes, there needs to be more housing and say, where does it need to be? You know, developers want to build where it's cheap for them to develop or where they can get the best price for their finished product. That's not matching need. The need is will look very different in different parts of the country. So it's the commodification of housing as, as an asset is, is the real issue rather than a right uh, and part of a public good. And that's the crucial issue. And, and unless that's addressed 
we're not going to really get much change. But I would say, to the, even within the terms of capitalism, it, it, it's in its own terms, it seems a logical thing to do to have your workers afford to live somewhere. Except, but we don't, you can't expect logic from capitalism. It's sort of eating itself, and and what we're seeing within, particularly, and which is why I wrote partly wrote my book about why I talk about the culture wars. Culture wars are a substitute for solving material problems. When you can't improve, build a house for somebody that's affordable, when you can't provide them an adequate wage to support their family on, when you can't, you know, deal with productivity because investment's going into um, dividends for shareholders, then you turn to a culture war. Um, and that's kind of where we are at the moment. And that it, it even turns into a debate about aesthetics, which we saw with the Building Beautiful Commission, which the government was arguing if homes are beautiful, people won't mind where they're built, which is codswallop. It's absolutely, you know, the, 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 it is a smokescreen for, for A, doing nothing, and B, a conservative aesthetic agenda. Up until quite recently, we had a situation where, where homeowners, uh, their property prices sometimes were going up stratospherically, sometimes going up gradually, but generally going up or, or holding. Mm. Meanwhile, everyone who wasn't a property owner... Um, was uh, you know seeing increasing rent, seeing increased scarcity, harder and harder to get a place. So that was very much a kind of win and lose situation. We're now uh, potentially temporary, potentially for for a long time, moving into a situation where where house prices are not so uh, destined to go up. They're potentially they're going down. Um, but at the same time, uh, people who were losing before are not suddenly getting access to the public housing or or, or, or reducing rents. Their rents are still going up, right? So what does this lose lose scenario look like? Well, it's it's stagflation, which is what we saw in the seventies as well. And property is all about you know, the 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 difference between current value and future value, and that speculation between the two. And when that starts to fall apart, as it did in the seventies, and it does cyclically, uh, um, as capitalism has crises, um, then then the wheels fall off, and the wheels fall off in the UK particularly because we've invested in housing as an asset as as the motor of our economy instead of manufacturing or whatever it may be it's buying and selling housing going to ikea to fit out housing and you know once that kind of illusion or those 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 kind of balls in the air fall we're in for a rude shock a landmark study of the class pay gap has revealed that working class people are paid thousands of pounds less on average than middle class peers doing the exact same jobs. The findings of the Social Mobility Foundation report have been explored in a Guardian long read this week. The Guardian and Dazed magazine explored the findings of the report, which indicates that professionals from working class families earn £6,718 less each year on average than their middle and upper class counterparts. Potentially, this could mean architects, landscape architects, city planners, municipal professionals, uh, that's potentially many of our listeners, all being paid less because of where they come from. Women and most ethnic minorities also face a double disadvantage, according to the report, which found that professional working class women earn £9,450 less than men, and professional Bangladeshis were even worse off, earning £10,432 a year less than white men in the same role. 
The 13% pay gap means that from the 14th of November until the end of the year, hundreds of thousands of working class professionals will effectively be working for free. Robert, what's this all about? The findings of this report are quite staggering. Why has the class pay gap seemingly been given so little airtime up until now? And why is it such a big deal? Essentially, the media aren't interested in class. Um, they haven't been for a long time. Um, they're going to have to get interested again as unions get active in the face of the cost of living crisis. But really, there's this idea that um, the class struggle, if you like, is over and that the, the struggles are cultural or ideological. We are seeing a rise of class consciousness, and particularly a rise of class consciousness uh, amongst Gen Z, who look at the failures of capitalism and the climate crisis and realise this isn't working. But that doesn't, that's not been a narrative that the media's been very interested in for decades. Um, uh, even papers like The Guardian don't have an industrial correspondent anymore like they would have done in the past. Um, they don't cover trade unionism in the way they would have done in the past. It's not part of their world and it's not part of the journalists who work their world either because they've not come from a, from a working class background very often. Um, so I don't think it's any surprise What's interesting as well in talking about sort of women or, or, or people of colour is the it's an intersectionality of issues that matters rather than an intersectionality of identity. And what, what, what this report is based on is that book, The Class Ceiling, and the parental, the, the hand-ups and, and hand the handouts that certain people get. And what that creates is a uh, situation where certain people who have not just the... I don't think it's just the bank of mum and dad to pay out or cover their student loan or anything. It's to know that if you want to do an internship or take up a creative profession, if it all goes wrong, there's that familial safety net there. I remember I, when I did my journalism postgrad, I had an internship at The Guardian and did it for a little while. Some people would just cling on there, being present until they got on stuff. I couldn't afford to do that. And at the same time, yeah. things like EMA, uh, yeah. or like uh, being able to go and stay with your parents, maybe in yeah. the spare bedroom, but then you had things like the bedroom tax, which then sort of yeah. take away all of the safety net that even working class people might have had. Yeah, or the ability to you know pay the rent, which allows risks to be, to be taken. And I think the report's authors talked about the... Um, Early career lubricant, which allows people to manoeuvre into more promising career tracks that are uh, trickier. They can resist exploitation. They can um, take creative risks, take opportunities that might not pay now but will have rewards later. People from working class families without that kind of resilience don't have that. They, they, they can't. They have to be more careful. Because you know it's you know two two pay packets between them in the street, and and thinking of your own experience, you're you're a journalist, and obviously you, f you focus on built environment and heritage. Um, what what have you observed and the kind of impact this has on 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 cities and urbanism and how these places are made? Well, there's all sorts of concerns, aren't there, about, about gentrification and social cleansing and and 
nurses not being able to afford to even to get to their shifts and are being forced out of the city and the homogenization of the city which of also has a gendered and a racialized component because it's uh, Londoners of color are disproportionately working class so it has a double impact on them it creates a more homogenized city where creative creativity itself gets driven out you know as I said earlier you can't you can't pickle a shark in a bedsit and there's that space for creativity is absolutely vital and Sarah Shulman wrote about this this sort of New York activist in um, about East Village if you drive out that diversity and that the ability for an exchange of ideas between difference you get uh, segregation you get conflict between different communities but you also start to lose the very idea of an alternative society. A 265-year-old public house frequented by historic figures such as Charles Dickens, Samuel Pepys and William Thackeray is under threat after the landlord evicted the proprietors in a dispute over rent. This story has been brought to light by Rachel Cook's opinion piece in The Observer, which ran with the provocative headline, A city that can't save an institution like Simpsons is no sort of city at all. Simpsons, London's oldest chop house, has been on the same site down an alleyway off Cornhill since 1757. Cook writes, quote, It has bow windows and brass rails, wooden booths and lovely long-standing staff. Best of all, there's a dish on the menu, unchanged for centuries, called stewed cheese, a hot sauce to be spread on toast, like Welsh rarebit. Um, it is, in other words, a national treasure, writes Cook. In a bid to reopen the historic venue, the manager is aiming to crowdfund £385,000 to settle the dispute with the landlord. So far, more than £65,000 has been raised, which is an enormous amount. Um, Robert, why are historic places like the Simpsons Tavern uh, important to save? Because they're a part the texture of London, and it's, uh, it's places that are vulnerable to neoliberalism um, that suffer. Um, you really see that with the queer spaces around the city, which are vanishing. It's related to, uh, often related to who has power in a society to to project their needs and demands and spaces in a place. Um, and we have a general issue in the UK, and other jurisdictions as well, about that the, the heritage system is really bad at protecting uses. One of the issues is it can protect the uh, fabric of a building but not the fixtures and fittings. It's actually been made worse in recent years because if we take the example of the Royal Vauxhall Tavern which was listed grade two a few years ago largely for its associations with LGBT history uh, but historic England had a really difficult time trying to justify that listing because they the that heritage is an intangible heritage and it wasn't particularly evident in the fabric of the building so what they did uh, and this happened uh, because of the 2013 enterprise act which allowed listings uh, descriptions to exclude parts of a building from a listing previously it was the entire thing that was listed when a building was listed so in the rvt's case they removed the bar from the listing, which is a thing that makes it a gay pub. That's the bit excluded from the listing. So it could be replaced with something else? It could be a Cafe Nero tomorrow, and there's very little that can be done about it. We're now on to the culture section, favourite part of the show. Uh, very exciting. This week we're talking about Monumental Lies, new book by Robert Bevan. Um, 
Perhaps you could give us a flavour of this new publication. We've got a copy here in the studio. Uh, what's it about? Why is it something you felt compelled to write on? Oh, gosh. Well, it's not just about statues. Let's start. <laughs> it's, about, it's about how the built environment, and particularly uh, the historic built environment, is manipulated for ideological means, or how that happens and what's happening now. And it kind of, in some ways, it's a follow-up to the last book I did, The Destruction of Memory, which looked at the targeting of architecture in conflicts. This is sort of looking at it in the sort of peacetime equivalent. So there's various threads to it, which including looking at the role of architecture as the evidence of history, material evidence, the physical evidence of history, um, there, and how that is even used in trials like the... David Irving um, Penguin Books trial where, you know, essentially architectural evidence being used to resist Holocaust denial. And then we have uh, matters like architectural determinism where we are looking at how much does our physical environment affect us? Does taking a symbol down, a contested monument, does that make things better or not? Uh, what influence do these statues around us have on us um and then a kind of another thread in the book is is looking at the kind of contemporary style wars between traditionalists particularly in continental europe uh where it's expressed in the the resurrection of destroyed churches and palaces and city centers often in projects linked to nationalism far right um, and why is that happening now that kind of fortress Europe mentality the great replacement theories and sort of those kind of racist theories and in England I think that's being in the UK being expressed less in uh, bricks and mortar although there's some of that more in trying to influence policy to create more traditional outcomes as I was talking earlier things like the building beautiful commission um, design codes they're all ways of the uh, central government trying to manipulate the uh, what gets built in their image essentially it's, it's a very very interesting thesis and um, obviously the book itself is called monumental lies I mean really catchy phrase you say there's a growing threat to the material evidence of the truth about history um, where is something like this most apparent in London? I think an interesting example is the Bomber Command Memorial, built in a saturation zone where no monuments were supposed to be built, but Westminster nodded it through. This is at Hyde Park Corner. At Hyde Park Corner. It's a big classical monument. Yeah, it very... was built in the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Essentially, it's a atavistic language for a lying argument. And the lie it presents is that um, the bombing campaign of Germany during the Second World War helped win the war. We know that's not true. However brave the individual pilots and uh, flyers may have been, area bombing was a war crime. And as far as we know, did absolutely zero to shorten the war or defeat Nazism. But that lie is... It's chiselled there in Churchill's words on the walls. And the whole whole project embodies a lie, which essentially is kind of um, a, an argument for, or for aerial bombardment today. And the 
and what we see in you know the NATO bombing of Libya uh, or Iraq or British weapons being used on people in the Yemen and it's part of an ideological justification for those kind of campaigns. You touch on the kind of iconoclasm that we've witnessed in recent years with monuments being torn down. Now here in London, uh, outside the Museum of the London Docklands, there was a statue to Robert Milligan, who was a someone who created this dock enterprise, which was involved in the transatlantic slave trade, re receiving the sugar from the slave plantations. Um, that was then taken down by the local authority, presumably because um, it was very near a dock where someone could have chucked it into the dock and, and re replicated what happened in Bristol uh, months earlier. Um, was that the right move? Uh, is, is, is that doing truth to history? Uh, or in your, in your argument, would it be better to, to keep the the statue there and um but then to sort of critically re-examine the statue in context and the fact that it was even put there in the first place the fact that it's right outside the museum of the london docklands in such a prominent position somebody must have thought that was a good idea at some point clearly somebody thought it was a good idea uh it was kind of a bad idea and, and interesting the location of a statue and, and its context changes its meaning uh it's interesting like the the statue of clive of india was installed hundreds of years after his death outside the Foreign Office in the middle of the First World War when there was an uprising in Bengal. And there's all these ideological... Well, the, the statue of Cromwell outside Parliament at a time when uh, Irish independence was becoming more and more of a likelihood. Exactly, and that was kind of paid for on the sly and put up overnight. And, and so context matters. The statue of Cromwell statue outside Parliament might be a reasonable place. It would be very unreasonable to put it in Kilburn. Um, so you say so, keep them there but critically examine why they're there? Or are you... I, th I think sometimes they can be moved. I think, I think the key thing if, is when you've got a, a monument that honours someone or something that doesn't deserve that honour, the clever thing is to turn a site of honour into a site of shame. And putting an explanatory plaque next to it that you have to stoop to read, that which is what happened at Oriel College in Oxford, uh, that does nothing to change the honour given to Rhodes high up, up on that on the Rhodes wing of Oriel College. So you've got to be a bit cleverer. You've got to do things at scale. You've got to intervene architectonically, artistically, um, and find ways of of undermining the the original message where that is justified. Uh, my favourite example is in Bolzano in northern Italy, which is a alpine Italian town with complex history under Mussolini, where it was expanded with, you know, a lot of a fascist new town was attached to it, essentially. And still today is the largest fascist fine artwork surviving it's about 198 square meters this huge stone frieze and about 10 years ago this big debate what should we do with this this problem monument and there were some people who wanted it taken away there were some people who wanted it permanently covered up and the winning scheme uh didn't remove the monument this frieze at all this bas relief instead it hung illuminated letters in front of it, big LED letters in three local languages, and they were words from Hannah Arendt, no one has the right to obey. And that was a direct comment on obey, which is carved into the free as part of the 
fascist slogan, no one has the right to obey. Uh, you can't just follow orders. It was kind of following on from her work on the Eichmann trial and things like that. And such a clever way of undermining that original freeze. Nothing's been taken away. Uh, you can still see what was there before, but it's the honour has been subverted. And I think that's what's really... Those are clever ways of dealing with these issues. You touch briefly on gatekeepers. Uh, you say that uh, long-standing concepts such as authenticity and heritage are being undermined and trivialised by gatekeepers such as UNESCO. I mean, as you know, I, I write about architecture competitions. I'm familiar with UNESCO running architecture competitions. Often they look quite good. Um, and also you're being this kind of preserver of world heritage zones like, like Westminster or the Greenwich World Heritage Zone or something like that. Um, what, what's the issue here? Um, I'll give an example. Uh, Mostar Bridge, uh, destroyed in the Bosnian War. There was a decision made after the war, we're going to rebuild the bridge, symbol of reuniting the communities on both banks because it was kind of divided to sort of uh, Bosnian Muslims on one side and Muslim Croats on the other after the war. Um, and there was a kind of wishful thinking that uh, reconstructing that bridge or reconstructing a monument will bring about reconciliation. And... Um, there is no evidence to support that. In fact, the evidence is that life in Mostar is pretty much segregated still. But that's not what UNESCO say. Not only did they help rebuild the bridge, which you can argue was a reasonable thing to do as a act of resistance to uh, cultural cleansers, and, and I kind of sympathise with that, what's not reasonable is to then declare it a World Heritage Site. This bridge is brand new. Um, World Heritage Site criteria demand authenticity, that the material is genuine, and that if it's reconstructed, something, you know, the Venice Charter, you know, if something's reconstructed, it's as, as far as possible out of the original materials and, and kind of codified ways of working with heritage so that we understand what's old, what's new, uh, what we're looking at, uh, what's material evidence of history. Instead, UNESCO for ideological reasons, suddenly declared uh, Mostar Bridge a World Heritage Site and jumped all, through all sorts of hoops to try and justify its own decision. So the, the book is called Monumental Lies. It's published by Verso. It's a very handsome-looking book. It's definitely on my Christmas gifts list. Um, thank you, Robert, for being on the show to discuss it. Um, just uh, other, other uh, notification in the culture section, there's the Love Letters to London competition. Uh, it's organised once again by the London Society, aims to celebrate the city and all its life, charm and mystery. Uh, it's free to enter. And um, what they're doing is they're asking Londoners to write up, uh, write, or anyone with a love for London, to write up to 500 words around the theme of making connections. The deadline is midday on Wednesday, the 30th of November. Robert, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on London. I hope you can join us again in the future. Thank you. You've been listening to The London, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at Open City London, or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. 
Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.